This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Forum. Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we speak with leading researchers about recent papers and advances in their areas of interest, either in our journal or elsewhere. I'm Michael Francisco, a senior editor at the journal. Today on episode 18, we'll be talking all things microbiome, the collective population of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in and on our bodies. Our host is Barbara Schaffe, chief editor of Nature Biotechnology, and her guests are Michael Fischbach, Associate Professor at Stanford University, and Sarkis Mesmanian, Professor at Caltech. Barbara, the microbiome is a hot topic right now. Tell us why. Thanks, Michael. This is a really interesting and exciting field these days, as we are starting to learn more about specific microbes having specific roles in human disease and lifestyle. We finally have some tools to ask questions about microbiome function in the lab, and we're seeing the first hints of clinical use for these findings. The past few years have really been focused on generating data sets from different groups of people or in different disease conditions over time. And now we're going to be able to look at these data on a deeper level and bring some of the findings to the clinic. Can you talk a little bit about your guests, Michael and Sarkis? Michael, as you mentioned, is a professor at Stanford, and he has recently published an exciting piece of work in Cell, where his lab generated a defined community of human gut bacterial species and used them to colonize mice with the aim of being able to mechanistically look at how specific microbial species may contribute to different phenotypes. And Sarkis has done some groundbreaking work looking at how our microbiomes can contribute to immune responses and neurological disease. Thanks, Barbara. This should be interesting. Let's get started. Here's episode 18 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Welcome to the Forum Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Drs. Michael Fishback and Sarkis Mesmanian about recent studies in the lab and clinic related to our microbiomes, or the communities of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that naturally live within and on our bodies. So to start, maybe you could discuss why you have chosen to study the microbiome and how you got into this field. Michael, would you like to go first? Yeah, great. Um, the, I got into it later than most and uh, not on purpose. We were studying organisms from the soil and ocean that made chemicals, natural products that were useful therapeutically. And some time ago, did an unbiased survey, a a bioinformatics survey to see which bugs had 
genes that encode natural products. And, and we're surprised to find that some of the most interesting ones were lurking in what were at that time new genome sequences that had been deposited by the Human Microbiome Project. And so that um, bioprospecting got us interested in studying bacteria that live in the gut and on the skin uh, so much that we stopped looking at bugs that live uh, in the in the soil and elsewhere in terrestrial and marine ecosystems. And so that, that was my point of entry. Great. And, and Sarkis? And for me, I was uh, looking for a topic area for my postdoc. Uh, my graduate work was in microbial pathogenesis. And so towards the end of graduate school, I started just reading more broadly about microbiology. I knew I wanted to do something close to, to bacteria in, in particular. And it didn't take me long to stumble upon the microbiome. This is the year 2001. And what I mean by that was a one-page opinion article by Jeffrey Gordon, who's the godfather of the field, um, talking about all these bacteria that live in the human intestine with a take-home message from that essay that we really don't know what any of them are doing. And that was enough to get me excited about pursuing this as a, as a career, and I've not looked back since. Yeah, I'm also equally as excited about this field just moving forward. Um, and you both kind of touched on the history of the microbiome um, and how it came about. And, you know, Michael, you mentioned the Human Microbiome Project. So, you know, since that concluded in 2007, there have been a ton of advances with all of this data, both in the lab, in the clinic. So I, I want to start first with some of the technical advances in the lab that really have enabled researchers to learn more about these interactions that are taking place within our bodies. So the Human Microbiome Project, as we know, wrapped in 2007 after you know, a, period, a long period of time, and it's had some successors. But it's left us with a lot of questions, specifically regarding variability between individuals. But we're seeing that the microbiome is really affecting everything in our bodies, our immune systems, our behavior, our brain. So what do you think are some of the most interesting biological questions that have really come from these studies? Sarkis, you want to go first? Yeah, so I think the Human Microbiome Project was um, a catalyst for the field in the sense that it got a lot of people thinking about the microbiome. Uh, you know, certainly the technology at the time was not comparable to, to our ability to survey microbiomes or specifically metagenomes now. So I think the, the actual information that we can leverage uh, that came from the human microbiome is minimal, not to say that there isn't, wasn't some useful information, but really more along the lines of making us aware of the concept that while we may be different in terms of the, the type of bacteria that we have in our intestines as, a, as you know, humans, as individuals, um, at the genus and species level, that there's a lot more conservation at the, at the pathway or, or the functional level. Right? And that, you know, to me in particular, was really important in terms of, again, at a very high level, in terms of a, a concept that came out of the Human Microbiome Project, because it started, you know, people thinking about the role of, of what the bacteria are doing, not just who's there, right? And so that guides a different set of experiments than just cataloging organisms, which I believe there's still a lot of. And it also led to, and as you're probably alluding to, different technologies that now were being brought into play to try and understand what the functional consequences of the microbiome are. And you can think about those as being you know, metabolomics, or proteomics, uh, transcriptomics, 
but also this notion that there's a consequence to the organisms that we're colonized with, specifically the consequence to the products that they're making as part of these biosynthetic pathways. So I believe that it also opened people's eyes in terms of thinking about what that may be doing, what the microbiome may be doing to the host, uh, whether that be a human or an animal. And that led to what I like to affectionately refer to as the age-old art of experimentomics that essentially opened up new hypotheses that are currently being tested. I might add to what Sarkis said that just to sort of lay things out in a simple way for, for people who don't do this all day long, that our normal experimental capabilities in this area are look very different from the way other people do biology. Typically in biology, if you have a question about a component of your system, a gene or a protein or a complex in yeast or in flies or in worms or in mice, you can just get rid of it and see what happens. And in, uh, in studies of the microbiome, until recently at least, that's been very difficult to do. We, we don't have the ability to, to control the composition of like the, the roster of bacterial species and the ability to, to make gene knockouts or, or to add new genes in the way that other people almost take for granted in, the, in their experimental systems. And so as that's begun to come online, it's become very interesting to examine the kinds of questions Sarkis was talking about, because now they've, they have only just become experimentally tractable. It's amazing how far we've come in a sense with the, the, the capabilities being so immature. Yeah, I mean, Michael, you've done some really interesting work here with the mouse models and these core microbiomes. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? What will these studies with using the mock communities in mice aim to show us? Yeah, sure. I think we, to crystallize the, the, what drove us to that, to, to want to, to build a community, that, a, a big defined community, a model system for the, the microbiome, we and others were driven to, to the area by some amazing experiments that Sarkis and other people who had gotten in early like Sarkis had done where you transplant a fecal sample from, from typically a human into a mouse and you'd see that some interesting phenotype comes along for the ride the ability to respond to anti-PD-1 immunotherapy, for example. And that's really exciting because it, it shows that the microbiome is linked in some way to a phenotype of interest. But then projects still these days tend to get frustrating and disappointing around that after that proof of concept experiment because it's difficult to take an undefined mixture and figure out what in there is, is the active component and how it works. And so we became compelled by the idea that if we were able to reconstruct a defined version that had sufficient complexity um, to, to capture the you know most of the salient biology of a, of a gut microbiome, then having seen a phenotype like the one I just described, you'd be able to start removing organisms and see who's responsible. And so I think it was that capability that, again, I think a lot of other people in the in sort of the biomedical sciences would take for granted that we were lacking and that I hope is now going to be possible for people to do um, in, in, in this area. And if yeah. I may add to that, Barbara, um, just talking about the communities that Michael is creating and that we, as our lab, benefit from uh, through our collaboration is, um, and this may seem trivial, but I think it's biologically important, is that the mouse microbiome looks almost nothing like the human microbiome, uh, both in terms of complexity, but also in terms of the organisms uh, and their pathways that are there, right? So many of these 
of the mice that are purchased from commercial uh, animal vendors have very depleted microbiomes. And these microbiomes were depleted over many decades in a systematic fashion when people weren't considering the microbiome as a variable in biology. Just so you know, vendors can sell a reproducible product of an animal that doesn't get sick. Uh, but what they've done through that process, again, not just aware of, of the consequences at the time, is essentially divorce that animal from the influences of the microbiome. And so I think the added benefit to just adding back that complexity, in addition to what Michael said, is that now you know communities like the one Michael is is developing or has developed allows transplantation of human organisms, so better translatability to the human system. And Michael's also built tools to then man genetically manipulate some of these organisms, which again allow a higher level of refinement to get into the specifics of the biological interactions between the microbiome and its host. And so again, I think a lot of advantages to going to these to these human synthetic communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's clear that there are associations between specific microbiome strains in humans with different immune or biochemical responses. But it, it's not really clear how these strains are, if they're sufficient and necessary for associated disease phenotypes. And I know this is a question you're both very interested in. So do you think you could talk a little bit more about some efforts that either your lab or others are doing to kind of tease out these mechanisms aside from, from you know, creating these mock communities, whether it's in a disease model or just for general biology. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're interested in, in trying to model um, human biology in mice. And again, that's why we're so bullish on, on these humanized communities. But in essence, there's obviously a number of different, you know, when you're talking about something so complex as having over 100 individual species in a microbiota, again, each with their, you know, many unknown functions. You know, a lot of times you can associate a particular uh, microbiome configuration with a phenotype, but then you really have to roll up your sleeves and do the experiment to try and understand exactly, like, how is that, you know, mediated? In other words, what are the relevant organisms? What are they producing? How are those molecules interacting with host receptors and cells, what are the, the biological outcomes of that, whether it be disease or behavior and what have you, right? And again, you know, I think we can spend a lot of time talking about the various different methodologies that uh, are, are, can be employed to dissect this biology. But again, you know, I think that that's, there are new tools to, to develop, but also existing tools that allow us to unravel. And so again, very specific in terms of you know, it would be specific in terms of the question being asked, but, you know, in 2023, we have a lot of tools to get down to the molecular level. And in my opinion, like that's what you really need to get an understanding of biological system as opposed to, let's say, an association of a microbiome with a particular phenotype, understanding exactly what are the relevant molecules that are meeting that phenotype uh, allows you to do biology at a, at a much more refined level. Yeah, great. Taking off of that, I, I'll highlight uh, just as an example area that we've become really interested in, inspired by pioneering work that Sarkis has done in, in how bacteria in the gut modulate immune function. This is interesting to us because of entirely because of pioneering work that other people did. If we take T cell induction as an example, um, there's some really interesting observations have been made by people like Dan Lippman and Fiona Powery and Yasmin Belcade that not all, but certain organisms that live in the gut, just by colonizing, induce a big burst of T cells on the other side of the barrier. There's a few things that are peculiar about that. One is that 
the flavor of T cell that results from this encounter seems to be dictated by the bug who's doing the eliciting. How that works is unknown. The T cells that result from this are antigen specific. So they express a T cell receptor that's hunting for a peptide antigen from the bugs. That's a level of specificity you would normally associate with the response to infection. And also antigen specific T cells do a lot of really interesting biology. We know that now having been through years of cancer immunotherapy and the pandemic, so that's a potentially useful observation as well. And also all of this happens in the absence of any infection. There's no breach in the barrier. So it's almost like getting the, the potent adaptive immune response you would expect from a vaccination, but without any infection or infection-like event happening. So trying to understand what, what the host is up to and why it responds to microbes this way is something we're, we're fascinated by. Typically, this is the kind of problem that would be really difficult to approach. And um, speaking to a point Sarkis had made before, the seminal discoveries in this area came, uh, I think, accidentally from experiments like Dan Lippman did, where the observation was that genetically identical black six mice from different vendors had different amounts of, for example, TH17 cells present in the gut. And so uh, it was uh, the, that was traced down to a single organism named SFB. That organism was eliciting the TH17 cells. Before that, this concept was, was really unknown. And so I think the, the ability now to control the composition of the, the community and then to, as, as we've done in a recent project, isolate all of the T cells that, that are present in the gut following colonization and then incubate them one at a time with every single bacterium in the community could make it possible to understand en masse who, who is contributing to this phenotype of immune modulation and how we can steer it in one direction or another. And so I think the problems that we had written off before as, as being unapproachably complex are, are now ones that we could begin to take apart in the same reductionist way that, that other people approach biology. And I'm really excited about that. You know, maybe I'll, I'll also give a specific example. I think that's what was part of your question as well, Barbara. Uh, from our lab, it's a recent story, and again, another collaboration with Michael, where we had identified a specific microbial molecule that was elevated in animals that expressed a lot, that, that displayed a lot of anxiety, and then showed that this same metabolite, this small molecule, uh, was increased in a human population that was uh, coincident with anxiety. It was a, a population where individuals with autism, but we looked at their anxiety profiles and this one molecule correlated uh, positively with anxiety. And so it turns out that that molecule is almost likely exclusively coming from microbial metabolism. We don't make the molecule. It doesn't look like it comes from, from the food, the diet that we eat, or even primitive organisms don't seem to make this one met metabolite. And then what we did was to identify a biosynthetic pathway. And again, you know, Michael's lab did this work. And then we recolonized animals with microbes that either produced the metabolite or did not produce the metabolite. And indeed showed that not only does the molecule get into the brains of mice, but it also induced anxiety-like behaviors in animals. And we tracked down which cell types in the brain were responsive and how those cell types affected the function of neurons in specific regions of the brain, which are linked to fear and anxiety. And so, as you can see, it's a, a nice proof of concept in an animal for observations made in humans. And again, you wouldn't be able to do these types of experiments in humans. And just, I'll just come back to the different types of technologies that are required to be able to dissect a problem like this. Yeah, I was just gonna shift over into those tools because you've both mentioned now the tools 
that are being developed here um, are finally enabling us to, to get at these questions. And I know one is the improved mouse models. Um, are, are there other computational tools that are needed, or is it more wet lab tools that are being developed that are really crucial here? Uh, for for us, the the main things we focused on are making are, are, are the microbiology and the genetics, which is a little old fashioned, but I think it, it uh, there's a there's a reason for it. We we want to have um, sort of complete atomistic control over who's present and even what what genes each organism is expressing, and so um, the need in our mind was for, for a defined community that, that could be something like a model system for the microbiome, hopefully that many different labs could use easily and, and improve upon so that we could all be working on a similar system and not everybody in, in a balkanized way in their own system. And, and then, as Sarkis mentioned, on top of that, we think genetics is essential, both to knock genes out that, that we think are important for a phenotype and, and gain-of-function genetics to, to add a, a gene or a pathway in, into a community to see what its impact would be either on other bugs in the community or on the host. And so traditional though it sounds, and, and we rely heavily on sequencing tools that other people have built and even do a little bit of tool development computationally ourselves. But even though sort of my background and the way our point of entry to this was, was computational, we think that the major needs, the things that were preventing us from doing like simple, just textbook level experiments were lack of microbiologic and genetic control. And so that's where we focused our efforts. Yeah, if there's one tool, so there's, there's likely, there's a lot of tools that the field has developed that again, you know, are quite powerful. There's likely tools that are being developed that are not within my wheelhouse or, or understanding, but maybe the, the one that I think would be beneficial is, is again, we have now the ability to employ these really broad screens of organisms and transcripts and proteins and small molecules. What I don't think we do well as a field, and this isn't specific to the microbiome, but it's utilizing the microbiome because it's such a complex system, especially when it's associated with the host, is how do you integrate across these large data sets? So how do you make sense of multiple large data sets, each measuring some different aspect of biology? How do you sort of put all the pieces together in a computational way to inform you about a biological process or at least lead to hypotheses that could be tested. And I think this, as ML and, and other uh, artificial intelligence tools uh, advance, I think this is going to be an area of, of great use to not just the microbiome field again, but to many other fields as well that are collecting these large and diverse data sets. Yeah, I was just going to say, especially as these data sets just get larger and larger and more comprehensive, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I think time to maybe shift to bringing all of this work to the clinic uh, and to humans. So what do you feel is are the next steps? Yeah, maybe I can start. Is, um, it's a good question. I, I, feel, I feel like the microbiome field needs wins in the clinic, meaning that both the academic and um, industrial development of microbiome-based therapeutics has been going on for, depends on your count, probably a decade or more. And, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm, and, and I think there was even more enthusiasm a few years ago, that the microbiome was going to be an avenue to help, you know, improve human health. And maybe one, in, you know, probably trivial way of, of looking at that is that if 
you know, many, you know, diseases or conditions are a combination of our genes and our environment. It's much harder to control the micro, the genes of a genetics of a person than it is to control their microbiome. And so the microbiome allows the opportunity to at least improve the environmental contribution to a disorder. And again, I think many, not all certainly, but many diseases have a pretty strong environmental component to them. And so I think that, that brought a lot of enthusiasm to the field and launched a lot of companies and, and, and clinical trials. And there's some, you know, again, we can look at this problem in a number of different ways, different modalities, different targets, different disease areas, what have you, that appear to be affected by the microbiome. But again, in my view, I feel like enough bets have been placed on the microbiome that, you know, it's time to see some results in the clinic to just validate the approach. And even though those first few therapeutics that emerge may not be the best or may not, you know, answer the biggest questions, right? But at least it provides, you know, confidence that this approach itself is worthwhile and more and more people will continue to invest again, both in, in terms of academic uh, investment in terms of their careers, but also in the discovery and development of new drugs. Great. I, to that, I would add that my own view is that the area is still quite young. It's been a rough ride and my, my hat is off to the early entrants who, who have who've been bold enough to, to go in and give something a try. The things haven't gone very well. And, and my own personal take on that is not that the biology isn't there, but that it's been difficult to, you, you can sort of see the immaturity of the therapeutic approaches by seeing that the field is not aggregated around one modality or another. There are still many different things being tried. There are undefined communities. There are individual organisms that are being used in their native form or engineered. There are small consortia. There, there are uh, prebiotics, things that bugs are supposed to eat. Nobody really knows what's going to be effective. And so the, uh, many different things are being tried. And, and so far without too much success. Uh, this, this is around the time when people with a short attention span begin to check out. And that's okay. It, that, that's to be expected. Uh, that this has happened before. I think the the reason I'm still interested is that I, I the the biology looks quite strong. Those of us who study the microbiome academically know that that there, there's there's a lot. This is a big lever to pull on the host. And so um, once we figure out how to manipulate the microbiome and get it to work for us, um, there, there's going to be uh, a, a great deal of possibility. And so that I think the the future looks bright, even though. It's been difficult to figure out exactly how to do this. I'd offer one other perspective that I, uh, that I sometimes don't hear and I think is important to point out. And for this, I like to use the example that if you, if you get cancer now, there's a strong likelihood you'll be treated with an engineered monoclonal antibody. Not because antibodies naturally have anything to do with cancer, typically they don't, it's because the antibody as a therapeutic modality is incredibly useful. It can be redirected against any extracellular target and, um, and its stock gives the molecule a long half-life and antibodies are generally safe as long as the target is safe. And so they're very useful to use therapeutically, not because there is native biology connecting antibodies to, to cancer, but because antibodies as a therapeutic modality have superpowers. And I would argue that the microbiome as a therapeutic modality may end up looking the same, that the scope of indications that people look at is unlikely to be limited to, to diseases that the microbiome is naturally connected to. The question is, what can it do for us? 
And I think it, it has a number of superpowers that are going to be quite interesting to run to ground. One of them is that it's capable of, as we discussed before, very potent and specific immune modulation. Another is that bacteria that live in the gut process tens of millimolar of inbound molecules and generate a, a similar quantity of outbound molecules, many of which end up in the host, in tissues and in circulation. And there are other things still. So I think that the goal and the challenge is not to figure out whether the biology is there, it is. It's to figure out how to, how to manipulate it in a way that it, it behaves predictably. And, um, and I, I see promising leads. Do you, do you worry about individual variability with any of these potential treatments in the clinic? For my own part, I don't. I think that humans vary quite a lot from, from one person to another, and that that hasn't stopped us from making therapies, uh, small molecules, biologics, cell therapies that, that work across a broad patient population in spite of that variability. And so uh, I think that therapeutic approaches in the microbiome, in my own view, are likely to follow similar rules where, in spite of variability, we come up with maneuvers that uh, work predictably across across people. I think those are the, the first ones likely to, to be successful out of the gate. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you have any sense of, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of different diseases, immune diseases, cancer, neurological diseases. Do you have any sense of what might in the future, reach the clinic first as a potential option for microbiome therapies? Yeah, there is one FDA-approved drug on a microbiome-based therapeutic, and that's the recent approval of fairing and rebiotics uh, fecal transplant for Clostridium difficile infections, which was always leading the field in terms of, a, of an indication for the microbiome because of a lot of work that was done, some of which was many decades ago uh, using fecal transplants. And so, you know, while people are still trying to work out that mechanism of, of how fecal transplants are improving C. C. diff infections, there's really no argument that it works, right? You know, not in every single person, but in a large percentage of, of, of people, I think it's upwards of 80 to 90% of people who failed many other therapeutics and really are, this is a last resort for them in what could be a very catastrophic uh, illness. Um, after that, um, and there's reasons why I think the fecal transplant in, in classroom difficile infection works so well. Uh, my own personal opinion, I think a lot of it is micro, microbe interactions that don't, you know, at least have a strong uh, role for how the microbiome shapes the host. But in terms of many other disorders outside of, let's say, gastrointestinal infections, the microbiome has to engage the immune system or the metabolic system or the nervous system. And, and for me, again, hard to know, you know, which of those connections are the most uh, robust and biologically relevant, but I think it just sort of intuitively makes sense that the immune system, especially that the immune system that's most, most proximal to the microbiome, meaning the gastrointestinal immune system, is you know, likely to be affected pretty pretty significantly by the microbiome. And so now you're talking about things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or other uh, uh, inflammatory diseases of the gut or maybe other epithelial linings. I think there's the most evidence that the microbiome is involved in human inflammatory bowel disease, you know, relative to other, other disorders. But again, you know, our and that's just based on where we are today in terms of evidence. And again, it's a lot of intuition that there's a connection between microbes and the immune system. Um, but, you know, our bodies are just bathed in 
hundreds, if not thousands, of microbial molecules which reach every organ, as I mentioned, including the brain, even protected organs. So I think the likelihood that there are fundamental impacts of the microbiome on many different conditions, and don't even, don't even have to be disease, even just sort of like, you know, everyday you know lifestyle uh, conditions, are, is likely high. So the question remains is what are the effect sizes? To what degree is the microbiome relevant, either in contributing to or being a mechanism to ameliorate a one condition over the other? And again, I think that just needs to be worked out in the clinic, right? Uh, mouse models, as as informative as they are, are unlikely to tell us if the microbiome is going to, you know, affect Crohn's disease more than it's going to affect Parkinson's disease. I think we can model those things in animals, but until we start deploying these technologies in the clinic, it's going to be hard to know which ones are the the best targets. But again, in my opinion, I think the immune system just makes the most sense. I share Sarkis's enthusiasm for for the immune system as a diseases related to immune function that could be solved with a change in by by eliciting or suppressing immune function on top of that i i would add metabolic disease as as something that i think is likely to that people will take shots on goal and and i think uh, we may see success there too and and other things beyond we're still discovering interesting fundamental biological connections that we wouldn't have anticipated at the beginning i remember there was a position piece it, it could have been something that Sarkis mentioned earlier in this in this podcast, uh, articulating the reasons why it made sense to spend so much money at the NIH on the Human Microbiome Project and the list of diseases that were anticipated at that point or, or, or biological processes that the microbiome may play a role in was, was quite small. It's grown considerably since then based on, in, in many cases, unexpected findings people have had. Um, and and I, I find that encouraging. Of course, the, the field has, has seen a little too much hype in, in some settings. And so the, there will be a, a you know, sort of a contraction and, and sobering of, of the scope of indications that uh, that are, are worth going after. But I think there will be plenty of circumstances where causation and mechanism will lead us to, to um, come up with a, a model for how a change in the microbiome could yield the amelioration of disease. You know, I think a lot of... A lot of um... The answers to these questions involve just better use of clinical data or just you know better capturing of clinical data as well. Because if you just take cross-sectional uh, samples from populations, you know, diverse you know, populations, let's say a disease population, and then uh, oftentimes a healthy population, which are not even in the same geographic area, let alone sharing a household, um, you're going to see differences in the microbiome, especially because of the level of resolution that we can achieve through metagenomic sequencing. And a lot of the human data to date is really based on correlative evidence that the microbiome of a disease population looks somewhat different than the microbiome of, again, oftentimes a poorly matched healthy control population. But of course, even if you believe that data and you removed some of the confounders, you know, this is still an association. It doesn't give you directionality. It doesn't give you causality as well. Maybe the microbiome is different because of the disease and not the microbiome is different and it's contributing to the disease. And so what I meant by capturing better data is, is once we have better studies that are uh, designed to capture longitudinal data, one may be able to see shifts prior to or after some clinical event, right, which gain more confidence that the microbiome was functionally relevant. But again, that's still an association. But then will also lead to interventional strategies. I think that's what, the, in my mind, the holy grail is, right, is that if we can go into 
a disease population, or again, it could be any other population where there's some defined endpoint that one can measure in humans, and then make a change to the microbiome and, and move that endpoint, then I think you can start beginning to make claims that the microbiome is a component or a contributor uh, to that to that disease. And and I feel like that's where we are as a field, right? Is that we can continue to collect large amounts of association or correlative data, but I feel like in those instances where it's possible we should be thinking about interventional studies to gain confidence of, of contribution, if not causality. Yeah, I think it's it's very clear from this discussion that there's a lot of potential here in this field, both in the lab and in the clinic. Um, and so I think this is a really great place to wrap up. And, and I want to thank you both, Michael and, and Sarkis, for, for taking the time to, to talk about your work and others' work in this space uh, with me today. Thank you, Barbara. That was fun. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah, Michael, very fun to, to chat with you again as well. That was episode 18 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Thanks to our guests, Michael Fishbach and Sarkis Medmanian. You can listen to other episodes of this and our other podcasts by searching Nature Biotechnology wherever you find and listen to podcasts. If you'd like to comment, please reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Nature Biotech. That's all for now. Until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.